I don't think that even in Silicon Valley, where we operate most of the time, uh, people don't know how to validate the ideas properly. Welcome, everybody, to Learn With All. Today, we're joined with Joseph. He's a founding partner of Pseudo Labs, Forbes Under 30, Cambridge Law graduate, and runs a podcast called The Startup Huddle. Joseph, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me and uh, looking forward to it. Yes. All right. So starting with Pseudo Labs, uh, I looked through the whole website and tried my best to understand what you guys get up to. And I saw some testimonials, and I'm always, I always like picking apart testimonials because, like, the whole point of them is to represent something. So, Easy Tenda, and maybe that's their name, or maybe I'm butchering that as well, states one of the values you guys offer, like a series of values, is the efficiency and high level strategy, product upkeep, and user driven iterations. Now, for most people, those are just buzzwords. They don't know what that, that means. Yeah. So, um, starting with high value strategy, um, can you talk about what you did for Easy Tenda? Or if you're under like an NDA type situation, can we like generalize what you do high, in a high yeah. level strategy? Yeah, for those type of yeah. people. For sure. So well, we are essentially, or we've been for a long time, uh, an end-to-end product building agency for startups. Uh, and what Easy Tenda meant uh, by high level strategy and the iterations, they meant that um, not only we offer engineering capabilities, meaning, you know, software development of mobile and web applications. But our second department is uh, like a product department or product management. And um, where what we do there is that we are very good in identifying what the target user of your product wants, what they like. Uh, and then therefore, we are able to craft the product to the likes of the end user. Um, so, you know, most of the tech products in the world today, um, the reason why they fail is because they are, you know, they are, they shouldn't even get on the market in the first place. Uh, and, you know, founder has an idea of what they want to build um, and a problem they want to solve, but they do not do the, their due diligence properly or what we call product discovery properly in actually understanding the target user. So for easy Tenda, for example, they are working in a very... Um, specific space it's a drinks industry uh where the problem they were trying to solve was how to make sure that the bars get the best offers from the drink producers um and it's a completely new thing you know they're essentially creating a two-sided marketplace between the bars and the drink producers and uh, and yeah and we really help them identify what the bars want what the drink producers want what um, how to craft the whole product in a way where both parties will be happy to use it so high level strategy in that situation is uh, essentially talking to everyone and kind of having a roadmap for, to execute on their vision. Like that's high level strategy, starting a high level and you, you talk to all the people. I'm trying to operationalize what you just said mm -hmm. for people out there who maybe they're thinking of making a startup or maybe they're just trying to understand these types of things and all they get are like the headlines of stuff. So the operationalizing of what you said would be, you know, like interviews that you talk to probably bartenders, you talk to, uh, juice producers, et cetera. Um, yeah, to to craft that exactly, and then uh, also I think that this is all more on, already on the execution of the user research or product discovery. But on a high level, you know, we are very well able from like the tens of if not hundreds of products that we have built already to you know very quickly uh, define what are the steps when releasing a product. So you know we are always trying to optimize on the speed and on the efficiency and on the cost. Many founders do not know how to start or they start from the bad angle or from the wrong angle. So we have like a clear process of how to validate your idea, validate the key assumptions, and then, you know, start executing on that. Starting executing on that, meaning that you build your first prototype or your MVP, and then you continue iterating until the product is live and has the, has the first users. 
Do you have a framework for thinking when it comes to testing out ideas? I think a lot of people, you know, they hear ideas are worthless, execution is everything. And so I know a number of uh, the listeners have commented that oh, I have an idea, but like, how do I translate that? So like, how, do, how can people be critical of their, uh, their ideas to know if they're good I ones? Think that, yeah, yeah. I, I think you're completely right in saying that everyone has ideas, but it's very hard to execute on them. And uh, as I said before, um, I, I don't think that even in Silicon Valley, where we operate most of the time, uh, people don't know how to validate the ideas properly. And yeah, we have the framework. Um, it really depends on the product and on the problem. Uh, but essentially, all the time, what you are trying to do is to firstly identify the key risks of your product. And the risks might be, um, there is a value risk. This is always the biggest one. What we mean by value risk is, um, are you actually adding value uh, to the target user and how to add value to the target user. Is their problem a real problem, right? That's the biggest assumption that you need to validate all the time. Then there are other risks uh, for very complicated products. Um, uh, there is a usability risk, for example. So um, if you are building for all generation, you need to build your product in a way uh, that the old generation will be able to use that, you know, not that, not, not that tech savvy um, or now uh, there is a feasibility risk as well. For example, in my previous company that I was doing, uh, we were trying to predict legal case outcomes. Uh, now, obviously, it's a completely new thing that we are getting to the market, and uh, we were doing it using AI and using you know machine learning models. So there are also ways how to validate whether even the problem you are trying to solve is solvable. And uh, we have a particular framework again because we have very senior product managers in our company, and uh, we have very senior CTO, and we have built a lot of products. We we apply that that framework and. Uh, and then, uh, you know, and that works, seems to be working for most of the companies. Yeah. If So if we were to apply and kind of tease out that framework as it relates to pseudo labs, because I always feel like if you're talking about a, a client or a customer, I always feel like, oh, there's probably NDAs in there. I don't want to get you in trouble because like the whole idea is like people trust you. So um, can we talk about the, the framework as it relates to pseudo labs, like just a little bit more about like, what that looks like on the inside? Mm -hmm. Again, so it, it's not a, I, I cannot give you like a clear cut, uh, okay. uh, clear cut process for every product, uh, mm -hmm. but you, you always start. So, I, so the first thing and the most important thing is that I think for every new product is that you should be, you should iterate fast and deliver quickly. Uh, mm -hmm. So what I mean by that is that we always try to, again, we, we don't only work with like very early stage companies. Our target is between pre-seed to series A. However, so we work with many Series A companies and we, we start working with them at the Series A stage. However, like anything new that you are trying to build, you should release the MVP within 10 to 12 weeks. So we are talking two to three months. That's the key. Uh, and the reason that uh, behind that is that, you know, ev everything, un unless you uh, start selling the product or show the product to your target users and try to get them on the platform, everything is just an assumption. And you know you get you you get those assumptions at least fifty percent of the time are wrong. So if you keep building something for half a year and then you start selling it uh, on the actually on the market, there is a very high chance that you have probably you know wasted a lot of money on engineering. So the first thing is speed, uh, how you get to the market. Then the second thing is how you even craft the MVP. And then the MVP always needs to come uh, at the very uh, simple version where you are trying to really just figure out whether your core assumption is correct. Core assumption meaning the key problem that you are solving, whether you, again, the value risk or the feasibility risk, right? Normally it's the value risk. And is the problem that I'm solving really a problem for the target user and can I solve it? 
there you can apply many techniques. You can apply, for example, the very basic ones are user interviews, meaning that you have a structured way how you talk to the target users. Uh, and you don't even have to talk to that many users. That is actually quite uh, surprising for many people. Uh, from our experience and also, you know, it, it's becoming a science product management by itself, although it's not been here for a very long time. Um, after like five to 10 users of the same category, if you really uh, define very well your target user, you'll see that they are they have the same replies, they have the same problems, they have the same worries. So if you properly um, if you properly define your target persona or user persona, after five to 10 uh, interviews, you already have a good idea. Um, then there are other ways how you can do it. For example, you can uh, create what we call like fake door tests. Fake door is essentially where you pretend mm -hmm. that you have a product that exists, uh, but it doesn't exist yet. And you only, and then you run campaigns uh, to, uh, be able to assume the interest uh, and by interest you can then uh, you can then assume how important the product is for the people so let's say that you have four ideas about the product you create four fake websites and you run traffic on them and then you see how people inter interact with the website and how much traffic it was able to generate there'll be a fake door or um what else for example um you can also validate those things using like local local prototypes so for example, for Easy Tenda, what we did is that we created in three weeks, like a using Bubble uh, uh, for the audience. It's a, it's a tool for creating a local tool where you can very quickly uh, create a simple app that it does. You know, it, it can look good, but the the looks there are not very important. And we brought their users from both the the bars, uh, you know, ten bars, ten drink producers, and we tried to recreate the experience of actually them. Uh, making business together on the platform, and we learned a lot by observing those uh, those mm -hmm. users. So there are various ways how you can do it, but the key is to focus on the user, focus on the key assumptions, and try to move quickly. So you don't spend you know months of researching something because you are probably wrong unless you start talking to the until you start talking to the target user. That makes a, a lot of sense to me. And I was you you were, you touched on the last piece a question I was going to ask for you, which is that if um, if there is like a no code in the beginning before you you know, I think the framework of shipping 10 to 12 weeks, like on a maximum, I think makes sense. I think Y Combinator, for instance, likes to see if you can get something done in like four to six weeks because like yeah. the tighter the interval, I think everyone's happier because yeah. what you're saying is very much correct. The sooner you can get people to touch it, the happier you can be. But I was going to ask you, you know, is there no code is there, uh, type of options you do just to like like wireframe it um, to, sh to show people? Because like if you're going to do something, um, the sooner you can have someone touch it, but you, you showed that with Bubble. I think Web uh, Figma's been pretty cool on that as well, in terms of just like you can show people the designs. But I haven't done Bubble before, but it sounds like they can actually interact with it a little bit, so you can even get a little bit more of like where they're going, where they're getting lost, what's confusing to them. So you get all that textual information, so that when you do um, pull the team together, you know, decipher that down into sprints, whatever. Uh, if you use Scrum Agile, you can then push forward with a lot more confidence, and then even um, update them as it goes. Like, hey, look, based on your feedback and uh users i uh, i found like users uh when you say hey you d you said something and we built like this thing because of it they love that and they're even more likely to, yeah. to convert over so i'll have to check out bubble after this right. uh this episode because yeah. uh i you're, you're very right there uh, i think that the, the difference between figma and bubble or Airtable, for example there will be another tool um uh, the, the the main difference is that in figma what you can build is a 
that's why I made what I call like a, a functional prototype. So in Figma, mm -hmm. you cannot buy, uh, build a functional prototype. It's going to just be like design prototype where you can just click, you know, so you, you allow the users to be able to uh, sort of feel the the, um, the screens of how the, uh, how the design will look like, what's going to be the user flow, essentially, the flow of the user in the product, but nothing is really happening on the back end. Whereas if you, you know, create um, something via bubble, it's a fully, fully functional product that where you can get users, they can pay for services. You know, there's real stuff happening, real data storing, and uh, like real, it's a real product. However, the problem with Bubble is that the reason why still most of the apps are built custom built, uh, custom meaning that you essentially write code from scratch and you don't use any of those tools, is that you know at some at some point uh, of scale, um, it's mm, too. It's hard to adapt. Uh, it's very hard to mold, and therefore, like most of those prototypes are then thrown away. So, for many clients, the question is, you know, how confident we are that we want to invest more, but then we don't have to throw away everything. Whereas with Bubble, you know, we'll we'll have to recreate everything. So that sort of portion of money and time we invested is gonna go all away. Have you looked into Figma Dev? I've been pretty. I, that's I agree with you on the limitation of Figma. Yeah. In that uh, product, product developers love it though. Apparently, I had a, I was yeah. working with a product developer, and he was just like, "I will I'll only use Figma." But uh, but then it's like okay. you design, design something nice, but then you have to like painstakingly replicate it. But Figma Dev, like yeah. they 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 code like they, you click a button, it makes a code for everything, so you can like pop pop it in mm -hmm. to like whatever you use in your IDE, and then it's a little easier. Have you experimented with that? Because that seems like it might uh, be a good bridge between the problems you're having, like uh, a no essentially a no code solution, easily for people to look at, but also kind of saving time and not wasting those like three to six weeks with a, a, a bubble uh, uh, MVP. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I think you might be right. I'm not sure what our product department is using right now, but like for the latest mm -hmm. sort of local that we've been doing, which was like two weeks ago, uh, we still use bubble, uh, but I'll definitely okay. recommend it and we'll check it out. Yeah, Figma dev. I've been pretty nerdy about it. I'm, I'm actually uh, working through uh, uh, just uh, experimenting with stuff just to see if it's as good as they say, uh, but it, it does seem like it, it's like, the best of Figma, and then it sounds like maybe it'll be like Bubble too. Um, if you guys use it and it works great, let me know because I'm I'm still testing it as well. Yeah, um, I'll do that. And then, uh, so fake door test. I, I've read about this as well. I have t tried doing them, but Google usually gets pretty testy if you do it. How do you get around the fact that Google generally doesn't like you know a landing page with like an email sign up, for instance, to validate uh, people's interest? Mm. I mean that's that's obviously then the the separate problem by itself. Uh, when mm. when you know Google sees a, a website that has been just released and then you know it's, they know what you're doing, uh, but yeah. you know but you can use fake door test even on the existing product. So you know many times you can just for example let's say that you have a fully functional e-commerce that that has thousands of users and you want to try a new pay method, payment method. So, and you want to see whether people would be interested. Now with this, Google probably wouldn't have a problem and you can still track on the website, you know, how many people are, are clicking on it and how, how people are interacting with it. So you can use it for like trying completely new stuff, but also, you know, within your existing product, you can create those sort of fake new potential functionalities and you can then track them. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, Google, if you have something there, it seems like they're happy, but... Uh, yeah. I, I guess I did the dumber things, which just had a sign up page and they, they yelled at me. Um, and then I've never yeah. done it since. So maybe, maybe I'll try with like a, a new feature aspect and like, oh, there's, there's other things there. Maybe they'll like it. So, um, another thing that the, the Tenda people, uh, said is that you do product upkeep. So not only do you de develop things, but I imagine there's like a, 
like a like a, they pay a subscription or something and you just keep the site updated and add features and stuff so you're basically the external dev team permanently with the team or like how does that work yeah so um we have started actually from the very beginning only as a dev agency and then we're adding all those different departments but i can also talk about the new uh, you know, very uh, surprisingly AI department that we got and we are we started focusing on a completely new uh, market segment. But in terms of the engineering, it was our bread and butter. It was coming from the very start, like core company culture. Um, and the way how it works is that, you know, I would say that 30, 40% of the clients, uh, we are their only development team in the beginning. Then they keep hiring, but we stay within the organization. For the rest, we already come to the company that has fully fledged engineering teams, but they are working on some new feature or something that they deem to be non-core of their of their um, uh, of their product, or they are really looking for flexibility. So, what is very good about agencies is that you know you it's very hard in the startup world to predict what will happen. Uh, you you might understand you might soon realize that you know something that you've been working on for a long time uh, isn't working. Therefore, you need a pivot. And for that pivot, you need completely different people to work on it. You know, you need to double down on, on data engineers and you don't need front-end people, for example. Mm -hmm. Now, agencies allow you the flexibility because you can upscale and downscale the teams as you want. So I think this is the main selling point. Uh, for Easy Tenda, uh, what we are doing, and that 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 answers first, first part of your question. So how do we interact with internal teams and, and what, what is our engineering doing there? Uh, it's essentially a fully dedicated engineering team, but we tend to work in different uh, in different sort of setups with different clients. Mm -hmm. uh, what they mean by upkeep is that we are their only engineering team uh, for a long time and um, the, a good product building strategy uh, never stops at the release of the product uh, because the more features you release, the more you learn about the users and the more you should tweak the product so that they like it. And the market is changing constantly, right? So you should, it's an it's an essentially a continuous iteration on the feedback that you are gathering from the users. And uh, normally what happens is that we build the MVP and then again, the team stays there. We even help people, we even help companies hire their own CTO or their own their, their own engineers and create like a separate team. Uh, but we keep iterating and there is a team that is constantly working on it uh, as if it was a, a it, as if it was an internal team. Mm -hmm. so, so I have heard of agency i've seen people use them before usually i just build a team within and then scale it from there but i do see your, your point of uh shifting a lot because if you the 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 risk reward of like shift like pivoting is that oh you pivot to something good but you just probably like pissed off everyone who works for you a little bit especially if you're like firing their friends to like account for like yeah. the cash flow burn and stuff like that so um, i see that benefit but i have heard the downside of sometimes working with agencies is that some people put money into them and then they get nothing out so that i'm curious how do you set it up so that what does it look like if I like paid you guys like a hundred thousand dollars? I don't know what your pays are, you know, whatever. But um, do you guys do like weekly deliverables or like their updates, that type of thing? So so people know it's being tracked. Because I think the when I was researching this type of concept in preparation for this interview, the big thing that people were concerned about is like uh, you know, getting burnt in this thing. So which is kind of a, an opportunity in of itself. If you guys have just historically shown that you can pre perform and 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 etc. Like that is immediately separates you from ninety percent of people that suck and just take people's money and run. But then. So how do you, how does it look like? What does it look like uh, like working together as you build something? Like for me as an example, or like someone else like that? Yeah, uh, I think you're completely right. And now I, I don't want to sound like, um, yeah, I mean, listeners might not believe it uh, that we are different, but I, I really believe that the whole industry is extremely in in a very very bad health. 
Um, and um, I mean, it's, I think one of the worst performing even in uh, industries in terms of the client satisfaction, generally speaking, um, because of the COVID and because of the, uh, you know, the rise of tech generally in the world, but mostly in the US, there's so many companies that were created and, and especially, you know, people coming from the East, um, you know, cutting down the prices of the development and many agencies on the market. Uh, I really would say that at least half, if not more of the providers are, it's like half scam almost. Uh, almost everyone that I talked to, um, that had some, that had several, that had more experience with agencies, they had some very, very bad experience, exactly as you, as you, as you described that they paid and they didn't get anything in return, or it was a very bad communication, uh, between the two parties, uh, or people stole their ideas, stuff like that. So, um, yes, it's right. Uh, it is a, it is a risk. And, uh, that's why. Uh, the best providers tend to like outperform everyone else. For example, uh, we are getting most of our leads still from uh, as the recommendations from our current clients. So I would say that at least 50% of the business is coming as introductions from the current clients. We even were able to, you know, start collaborations with the best VC funds uh, in Silicon Valley. Uh, we we are preferred partner of um, A16s at Bessemer Ventures. We've, we have several companies that were funded, for example, uh, we work with quite a few companies that were funded by Lightspeed Ventures. So we always try to get that that badge of credibility by simply working with the credible partners. And we know that once if we if we fuck it up once, you know, they'll stop stop working in us and it will very soon like spread. So um I believe that we are um that you know there there are different there is a clear difference in the game. Now how does it how it should work with a good agency? I'm not saying only with us, but the generally speaking with a good agency. You should always own have in the contract that you own uh, all the IP that has been built because it has been built for you uh, once you paid for it. That's point one. Point two, uh, you need to set the, the agency needs to have a very good process of communication and of collaboration. Uh, for example, the best standard is that um, the company is paid uh, based on the hours. Uh, because that's the, you know, it's called time and material and you pay the agency based on the hours. Now, however, they need to prove to you uh, how much hours they spend and that the, those hours that they spend on the particular epic or feature is actually, um, um, how, do, how to say it? It's, um, yeah, it, it, it's not a scam. They actually spend those hours there. How we do it is that we have a very, very transparent way of tracking hours. So you see essentially every person uh, to minutes how much they spend on, um, on, 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 on during their day on what. Uh, and then we have, a, you know, client can join all our ceremonies or we have the ceremonies together, even daily stand-ups together with the internal teams and once or bi-weekly, depending on what the product we are building, we have demos as well. Um, we are together on Slack. Uh, there is a dedicated product manager that is always available on most of the projects. So um, it's mostly about the process, I would say, and about the trust. It's hard to build the trust. That's why we have kind of, it's very hard to build a company in that space. Uh, it's very hard to get off the ground before you start getting those referrals. So, yeah. I think for anyone listening who's like, I don't know if I would, you know, uh, use a service like yours. Like, what's an example of someone who's done that and been successful? Uh, you just mentioned a huge one, which is Slack. Slack originally, uh, I think, looked like, I don't remember what it originally looked like, but they said uh, essentially it looked like crap. But they went to a, a, co a company or a group like yours 
and they built out essentially all the like the majority of the features and how Slack looks today, like that very professional, fun. Uh, I've never used I like I used Microsoft Office for like or whatever the heck the one that's like Slack for like um, ten minutes. Like I hated it, so then I went back to Slack. Um, yeah. But there's there's a there's a huge example of, of people exporting that production, like the expertise to people like yourself, um, which also is like an average dev person or an engineer uh, maybe has like what over 10 years, like maybe four or five different like companies that they work on, depending like how often they, they transition um, potentially in a year, you guys are doing four or five a year. So you're like, you're constantly like kind of like you have your own internal iteration to improve your guys selves better than like the average person from like an internal dev standpoint. So like there's, there's an intrinsic value to someone who's like constantly like, fighting those battles. You know what I mean? Um, and Slack's a good example of, of of a group that uh, partnered effectively and then benefited from it. I would agree. Like almost every bigger company using is using outsourced dev. Not many are using it from the very beginning, but almost any bigger scale up is using outsourced dev. Again, for the reasons of flexibility, also for the reasons of speed. You know, we make sure that we have the team ready uh, within the month, uh, like five people team that can like completely build something new in like you know those two months. Um, and also, the, you made a good point about expertise. So, yes, a usual dev, uh, if if they are you know if they are not working for an agency, uh, they will go when they are senior through like four companies. Um, we have hundred full time people right now, uh, and we have built um, we are building like ten to twenty products every year at least. Uh, what it means in practice is that if you can then accumulate that knowledge very well. Uh, meaning that every project is documented, uh, our but mostly like on the process side of things and on the key learnings, key failures. You know, um, sometimes we we already know how to solve certain problems because we have already been in that industry. We know the industry, um, and if you have a you know very similar to what like McKinsey or BCG those management consulting companies have, they have case studies. We build a case study out of every project. And therefore, mm-hmm. when then when we, we are dealing with a similar problem, essentially we we allow every engineer to access that database, and that and that's why we are quicker, and that's why we are we are better because you are working not only with that engineer's experience, but with the accumulated knowledge of all the other projects that we have done before. Well, that's really smart. The I usually make like an in-house wiki to, for the same purpose, but I've never I've never heard of anyone making a case study of each uh, project, which ma- makes. A lot of sense and wish you know i could get access to it all because i love learning but have you thought about um as like a, a lead gen like a marketing thing potentially anonymizing the information and uh like talking about them somewhere so then more people see like oh wow these guys do all the right things they check those boxes so potentially you could take the in-house resource learning tool and use it as like lead gen if you anonymize the data mm, yes yes um not there yet. We are. I mean, content mm. marketing hasn't been our strongest. Uh, I would say uh, pillar of sales. But yeah, we're, we're working on it. I mean, obviously, there is a lot of confidentiality many times involved, and uh, we also never reuse like stuff that could that would be against the. You know, it, it's 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 this whole business is about your um, essentially your um, credibility. So yeah, again, trying to find the right balance there. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it just sounds really uh, smart. I, I noted that on your career page as well, uh, but it sounds much cooler hearing it from you. Uh, I'll have to go back through and see if there's anything missing because like, it sounded really powerful coming from you, the the in-house learning tools. The, um, the case studies in particular, I try reading Harvard's ones every now and again, but they always like paywall them. So then I find them through other means and because yeah. uh, I'm not paying those, those prices because I, I just want to learn. 
Um, and they have like a massive endowment, so I don't feel as bad. But that sounds an amazing uh, benefit. I imagine, so the difference between when I hire for people, it's usually like they want to be a part of a certain mission and then they're really excited like jazz for that. But I imagine one of the things that you look for when you look for hiring on the team is are people who like are really hungry to try a lot of different things. Like they, they hunger for that, like that continual intellectual challenge uh, as like qualifications that you look for to separate like uh, an average person applying versus someone who's like really going to fit in with what you're working. That's a guess. They correct me if I'm wrong. That'd be like, that'd be my guess. I don't know what, it, what your actual criterion for hiring people is. So I think that, you know, the very reason why we started the company in the first place those three and a half years ago was that uh, we felt like there is a great opportunity on the market, uh, but mostly on the hiring market. So already what we were doing, before, what we are doing right now, it's been going on for like 12 years or so. And now the market is shifting. It's becoming not a very good business. That's why we are shifting as well. And I can talk about it a little bit later. But in terms of the hiring, uh, we are all, all the founders are from uh, Slovakia, uh, Central Europe. Um, or Czech Republic. And um, we've been working as, you know, I had the startup before in the UK. My co-founders were uh, senior software engineers or they had their own startups. And we know very well the environment in the Central Europe. And um, what appeared to be very uh, uh, apparent for us at that point in time was that there's a lot of tech talent. One thing that Central Europe in terms of education can do very well is like teaching like math, physics, computer science. Those are the three things that our education system has done well. The other things very badly. And um, uh, there's, so there's a lot of engineers, uh, but not very, uh, but not that many great jobs for them and not that many great startups. So mm -hmm. unless you are lucky, uh, you need to move from the country and people don't want to move. Uh, and there's a lot of people outside, for example, in the US working as like very good engineers, very good product managers, but they can't come back to set up their family, for example, because there's no job for them. So this was the idea to be able to, if we, we decided that if we create a very good culture and work for the best companies, our market was always US, like nine out of 10 clients are, are in our startups in the US. Uh, and if we allow people to do really their job properly, then we'll be able to hire very easily. Uh, and that's what actually happened. And we also be able to retain people very easily. And now in terms of the, the hiring criteria, again, you need to have people that are, first of all, not assholes. Uh, they need to be able to um, you know, to be nice, good people. Those are the people that we prefer. That they can work together. That you know, just you know, spread positive energy. Uh, but secondly, people who are really keen to learn. Um, it's so hard in the software industry to find like that particularly skilled people in that tech stack. Many times, therefore, you hire somebody who is like very quick learner and eager to learn and eager to like you know go beyond uh, what is. Uh, normally expected in a like a corporate job let's say how, how to um so i think there's like this like this new thing in the u.s where people are always saying like i act my wage or whatever and i've been talking to people in agriculture which is an entirely different related thing they're trying to find a way to uh ensure people can be paid appropriately given the necessity of the work which is a, they're having a similar problem and like it's a labor issue there's not enough people to do the jobs um, and I suggest like, oh, what if people get like a percentage or something, but whatever, how do you, how do you compensate or think about compensating, uh, people to keep them excited so that they keep going above and beyond? That's a very good question. And, um, mm, we, because, you know, so we are competing in, we are probably one right, right now, one of the like most recognizable, if not the most recognizable, uh, brands in like Slovakia and Czech Republic mm -hmm. as well, to a certain extent. Um, but 
still uh, because we are like a bootstrap and um, we are no investment bootstrap. It's also not a good, very good thing to get investment uh, if you're an agency, if you're another product business. Uh, and there are a lot of like U.S. companies here uh, that are essentially using the the, the region or as well as like a source of cheap labor. Uh, and it's very easy easy for them to like pay bigger salaries. So for a very long time, we've been mostly motivating people on the idea that they can really do their best and work. Uh, so do stuff properly, you know, and work in an environment where they'll be happy about the outcomes. And they also can work for the best client. So for many people, it's a lot more exciting to work for like a YC founder in the US and yeah. work with YC founder in the US than, you know, work at some backend of a bank where uh, with 60 other developers scattered all, around the world. So that was our m- main selling point, And that's what people loved. Now we got to the point where we can actually pay the same, if not more than the rest of the companies. Um, again, like it's mostly about, you need to just find the right people that love to, uh, that love the way, uh, the, the, the job that they do and that they love to, uh, the, the projects that they are on and, uh, and try to, um, and they see the impact as well, you know, because if you work as an engineer for startups, you can already see that something that you've built like a week ago, uh, is already implemented as, uh, and, 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 and it, it is in practice. So it's mostly about us just to choosing the right work and, and let people like be themselves. Um, and we are also thinking about like other schemes, right? For example, revenue sharing or, uh, ESOP, um, we are not, I mean, revenue sharing will be there in place for sure. So like certain percentage of what we earn will be shared um, to some extent uh, for the employees as well. We're also thinking about ESOP. Again, it's not the best tool probably for the type of company that we are and it's not typical in the industry. Uh, so still like trying to find other ways how to motivate people is is something that is actually on the table right now and it's been on the table for, for a few months. What is ESOP? Uh, employee stock options. Okay, there you go. Uh, it's like, is this like a new thing? And uh, you know, they all, there's always like new uh, things coming yeah. out every day. Like, I don't know if it was like a type of cereal or whatever. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, so there's a, there's a lot of stuff here that you get to do because you're in so many different areas. What's the stuff that you enjoy doing? Like, what's the stuff that you get too excited now that you're at the point you start compensating people well? If there's a, I, it's kind of like the nice part where it's like, if there's anything you hated, you could like hire someone who loved that aspect, so you can just kind of focus on what you love and enjoy doing. So. What is that love and, or aspects that, that you enjoy doing the most in terms of uh, the, what you build? I love building. So again, this is the second company and I like the uh, ability, you know, with, with the bigger company, you have more impact on people's lives. You can like really uh, make sure that people strive in your company. It, it's nice to be able to have impact. And it's also mm-hmm. nice to be able to like steer that, that ship. Uh, that's very important for me. Although I'm not the CEO, uh, that's my co-founder. Uh, however, you know, part of the board, and it, we make the decisions many times together, or most of the times together. And then, um, um, so building would be probably the most important part for me. Like after th- if this is ever done, like again, I'm gonna start a new company, uh, and I like the grind from you know when I started, when we started, in three and a half years, we grew from like nothing to around five, six million dollars in revenue right now. We've been the, we were the second fastest growing company in whole Central Europe last year, tech company. So the the grind is something that I that I really like about it. I am responsible for sales. There are certain aspects of sales I really don't like, uh, others that I like. So um, yeah, it's a little bit of everything, I would say. Yeah. The 
you gotta i think sometimes people look at like founders and they think oh this is fun and they see like when they're like a mark cuban type person where they're billionaires or whatever mm-hmm. and uh not the the grindy part you have to kind of love the grind i think like what you're saying uh because that's like 90 99 of what you're gonna do um but people don't see that part from a mental health standpoint is there anything you do just to make sure you don't get burnt out so you can keep keep going through it it might just be like a characteristic of yourself to not you know just, you just keep going um but is there anything you do any strategies it's definitely not my characteristic that i can just keep mm. going uh, i mean i'm not very good at, uh, at that to be honest so um i so for example right now i'm in a state where i'm trying to get my like health back together uh to, to the extent where I, for the past year, for example, I was just constantly working and not taking care of like either my body or my mind. Uh, what works best for me is it, always those cycles when I just like completely like go over the uh, yeah too much and then then just get calm a little bit and and uh, resurface uh, again uh, strong enough. Uh, for me, uh, I think that like doing sport is incredibly important. So uh, I I tend to even I tend to do sport every day, although I hurt my back recently, so I can't, but I tend to do sport every day. It was the best thing for me. Then meditation as well, although I haven't done it for like a year, so I need to get back to it. Like mindfulness, that helps mm-hmm. a lot. And then, uh, yeah, I, I think those two things. So sport and meditation worked for me the best. Um, and then I'm also trying to actually, um, I'm realizing that the easy ways of, relaxing the mind such as you know um, like going on social media or like watching uh, I, I i i used to watch netflix a lot and i still watch netflix a lot is not actually positive and it's mm-hmm. not relaxing that much um if you do it for a lo- longer periods of time without like other other complementary stuff yeah the there was once i i went through a week and i just wrote down like a positive or negative next to I think I had a neutral sign. I don't know what it was. Maybe it was just a slash. Yeah. I, it was about a while ago. And I just like went through like my days, like what took energy away, what gave it back. And typically the, you would think, yeah, watching a video or whatever, you know, for people watching and listening, I appreciate you. But the, wherever you are in life, the, yeah. I assume it's probably like to work and stuff. But like yeah. the, doing that a lot actually does not put energy into you. Reading a, some people, I think it does. Like this is just for me personally. But like usually like reading a book or like doing other things that like take a little bit, like it's almost like oxymoronic in the sense like it's like you wouldn't think putting energy out would get you more energy you think like stasis like watching a video like relax and have a nice time would then recharge you but you're actually not it doesn't work that way so yeah reading a book uh, doing some mindfulness or exercising even though you're expending energy so it seems like it would be the opposite you'd be more tired at the end of it you have more energy which is like really weird but that uh yeah i like went through an entire week and yeah it's very true like videos and stuff are they don't work the way they think intrinsically they would work Exactly. And like, it has to do something with, it definitely has to do something with dopamine and like other mm-hmm. neuroscience. When you just like watch reels all the time, it, it I feel like I'm like, I extinguished my dopamine levels completely. And now I, I'm just too lazy to do anything. And the same applies to like, um, the same applies to like watching a series, right? Like if you watch three in a row, I'm like so tired. I don't know. It's hard for me to get out of the sofa and start doing something. Whereas again, like if you do something active, it actually like gives you more energy so that's like the key learning that i get in had in the like past two two years maybe that i i didn't i i never was under so much sort of working pressure where sometimes you know it's like 12 hours a day or more and i never realized like the impact that those small things can have on me yeah 
I'm working. Uh, I'm doing research and guinea pigging about a dozen people on a book that I'm I'm writing that it, it involves dopamine. And uh, one thing that I've that seems to like really get people to open their eyes to this is uh, how much how much of your day is dedicated to just like quick dopamine fixes, and then like as a percentage, like most people like disturbingly are like ninety plus if you think about it, like in terms of like just like quick like like a <clears throat> silly Netflix show or whatever something that doesn't educate you or make your life better um and then how then i asked the next question of as a percentage like how close are you to your objective that you want for yourself this week like if you were to measure it and so people usually say that like at the beginning they're at like 97 or 95 percent and i'm surprised at how functional these people are 95 <laughs> percent uh dopamine easy hits and they're like well i move my the bar like one to five percent forward a week and it's like yes and do you ever feel good about that? Like, you know, you're probably not, probably doesn't feel very good. It's probably really hard for you to concentrate to all these things. It's like, yeah, actually, now that you point that out, uh, that is that way. It's like, yeah, now, now try to cut the dopamine in half and see what you do. And like, usually within like two weeks, they start being really productive. Uh, like even like, uh, uh, I don't I'll do research on this. So it's really interesting to hear uh, another anecdotal uh, evidence that if you like modulate your dopamine and how you like, uh, uh, you know, stress it or whatever, it's like really powerful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I was, I was, I think you are right. And I, I just recently started playing with this because I didn't care essentially before I was just like, you know, I'm into I'm under too much pressure. I'm just constantly working. I don't care how I f- spend my free time, obviously just do sport because I know that this, this makes me feel good. But like now I need to do something because I really feel the difference. And I'm not even talking about like alcohol and like other stuff mm-hmm. that can very quickly relax you. I think this has also a huge effect on, uh, on how you can perform. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, I, I think it's a multi-variable thing, and it's a little bit like I imagine there's probably like some population element of the population that can like they can they don't there's like their genetic abnormalities or whatever where they don't have the problem with like videos or whatever. They're just like the same as anything else. Maybe it's like the new generation is like they can like stand it and like us cannot. Uh, what sport do you play? I actually um, so I. When I was a kid, I played like football and water polo and stuff, but it was mostly individual sports. So I was running almost every day, going to the gym. Um, okay. Yeah, running, going to the gym. Um, that that was mostly my, again, like the stuff that, you know, I need to sweat. Uh, mm-hmm. And so some, where I sweat and where I like really destroy myself, that's when I seems to recharge my mind. So that was the main goal. Yeah, and football means soccer, right? Doesn't yeah, mean yeah, like, soccer, soccer. Okay, just be no, clear. No, 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 like, no. Yeah, I'm an American, so we have like different names for these things. And yes. uh, the episode that was released yesterday on the show, uh, Nick Goldner, we were talking about like cancer resistance and stuff. At one point mm-hmm. in time, I offered like to just like chase him around and attack him if he doesn't exercise. <laughs> and it seems like there could there should there could be a service where like CEOs or like leaders of a company that don't like maybe struggle making taking care of themselves that these like uh, ninja people could just like hunt them randomly. And if like at a certain ratio of you not doing it, they just randomly start attacking you, and it doesn't it doesn't stop until like it goes below. That'd be like a really fun way to solve that problem. Um, if anyone does that, I would love to have an interview with you. But uh, I think that'd be fun. And then um, you you said that you're you're transitioning into AI and into a different direction. Mm-hmm. What what is that? Tell us about that. So. I think that many agencies had huge problems in the past year uh, when the market crashed and the startups started to have, have having problems. Um, also, you know what happened on the market was that suddenly there is a there's a, so many players. Uh, everyone is trying to get their piece of the cake and uh, doubling down on sales with less money on the market, like a typical sort of 
market problem. Plus, what happened is that with the with with the AI coming to the scene, it's becoming easier and easier to like release your own uh, your own prototypes, release your own MVPs. Um, so as a result, like the company started essentially dying, like laying off people in hundreds. And we could also see that there was almost no business. It was incredibly hard to get to get projects. While we were fully booked out last year, this year we had quite a lot of people on the bench. We didn't have to lay off anyone, uh, but like we scratched the surface, I would say. And um, we also realized that long term, uh, we want to keep doing what we are doing uh, with the startups uh, because it's simply what most of the people working for us are passionate about and what we are passionate about. But we also need to find something new that will be more business savvy, I would say, for the company mm -hmm. that will allow the company to grow at the same extent as it was growing until now. And um, uh, what came to our mind as a, you know, we were thinking about so many different things. One was even like, let's build a product or let's build a few products, you know, and let's invest the money into like new startups that we'll own. And, you know, we have the engineering, all, all that kind of stuff. So different business models. And after talking to a lot of people, um, we decided that we are going to do AI transformation for low tech maturity, small and medium sized companies. What it means is that there's an, there's this incredible amount of companies on the market that are more traditional, typical businesses uh, that are really ripe for disruption. Uh, but um, even though the technology for them to be able to disrupt themselves was available for the past like 10 years because it's nothing new on the, you know, except for the Gen AI tools, like the, it's still the old AI, you know, it's still the old, the old technology, but businesses were not that incentivized to do something. Now with the, with the chat GPT and with this whole hype that is going to stay there, I believe about AI that is happening right now, the shareholders of the large corporates are pushing them to, to innovate, to use AI. Everyone needs to use AI. Uh, the investors are investing a lot into AI products. Private equity companies are investing a lot more into companies that have something to do with AI. And this push, this whole, that's my assumption, this push, this whole middle market into uh, investing in, into that. And they are really ripe for disruption. So what we want to do is that we, and we're already doing that with several companies. Uh, we, we created a completely new department, AI department slash business consulting department, like transformation department. We enter into the company very quickly within like month or two. We understand the key value drivers. So, for example, for for an advertising company, uh, it can be how quickly uh, they, let's say, it's a company that creates ads uh, and creative, you know, ads or films or whatever. Uh, how quickly they can um, iterate and how quickly they can release like a final version of the of the ad. And now there's a lot of Gen AI tools on the market, but nobody knows, you know, any, uh, sorry, there's the second thing that I forgot to say. Uh, everyone wants to do the AI thing, but nobody knows what it is. And especially nobody knows what's happening on the market because every every single month you have new and new products following the market. Uh, we know that because we have this whole community of founders. You know, I run podcasts, we run events in San Francisco, and we are meeting like hundreds of founders every year. So we know what's happening on the market and we have like very clearly understand and have like the map of all the products that are there. So we come into the company, understand the key value drivers, and then uh, you know suggest uh, the value driver can be the speed of releasing the ad for the creative studio or for a beauty care company. It might be you know how to better target our customers to do more efficient sales. 
uh, but mm-hmm. we, had ne- we have never been collecting the data and we have never analyzed the data. Uh, and then we suggest like the improvements and the improvements are normally some use of data science, some use of AI, some use of uh, digital product building. And what's good about this is that the other two departments that we had so far are very complementary. You know, you most of the AI innovation will end up being a digital product. And because we can build the product, design the product and build the product in a way that target users like it, uh, we just need this one department, this new department, and and we can do it very easily. Uh, and I think we are able to to transform the the SMEs. Uh, and we've been we've been doing that for the past maybe like four or five months, just like sort of iterating, and we already have customers there. How are they liking it? It seems like like you got the buzzword. You have like the idea that people are going to want to explore it, and you have the branding and the recognition of doing being in your industry yeah. for three 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 or X years, um, three or four years. So then, how are people responding to you guys helping them out in that way with this this new added uh, part? I think like very well, um, again, because it, be, it it has become a buzzword. And um, mm. um, if you really know how to deliver, uh, and that comes back to the talent that we can uh, hire, like we can hire PhDs that were working in somewhere lost at IBM Slovakia or like Czech Republic, you know, that they really know how to do their job for the fraction of cost of what it would cost to hire somebody like that in the US. Uh, I think... Most of them like it. It brings a lot of value. I think right now the challenge for us is to be able to um, better define the client segment uh, because we are a little bit struggling with sales to the extent where you know you can essentially do this for the whole world, for the small and medium-sized enterprises, uh, and we don't know where to focus right now. We have a client from like a beauty care industry, then from creative and entertainment. Another one is like an insurance company. Uh, we added value everywhere and it was a great collaboration, but now we need to like figure out where to focus really on what segment, what industry. Yeah. I wonder who needs it most. I wonder who um, needs it most and would pay you the most, I suppose. It's like the, the great ratio, like the biggest uh, improvement that you can come in at the same time has the pockets to appreciate you accordingly. Exactly. Um, but it's also it's also a question of the even the company size is a problem because if you come to the to an enterprise, you know, they're like, it's very hard to implement it's completely different sales. Um, mm. It's also like, you know, you need to convince like tens of people to like even, you know, and then you need to change the whole company. If, if it's an, if, if you are automating an important workflow, it's it's very hard. So, you know, but then they have the most money and then you can do the biggest impact. Whereas for like a mid-market, it might be easier. But again, like, are you going for advertisement or entertainment? Are you going for, drinks producers. Um, I think this is the key moment for many companies, you know, because you can waste a lot of time to just somehow find the, the right the right space for you. And over time, and another problem there is, and that's why many people actually, many companies offer it, but they don't succeed very well, is that you you are everyone is very general. When you enter a new space and you come to a company, well, we'll figure out what we can do for you. Um, no, it's not the best offer. Uh, you should, over time, you should just get more and more clients from the industry, actually build that industry expertise and come already with like a clear business value proposition. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Anytime uh, you can be specific, especially if you're reaching out to someone new, the yeah. better it is. Yeah. Especially if like you're saying at the beginning of our conversation, if you're at the point where you're saying to them, you know, what they would say if you were having a conversation, that makes it easier. It's like, oh, I have the problem. I have the problem. Like this is, this sounds like a, 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 an issue I'm having. Um, it, It's very, basically a, 
like a slam dunk. It makes everyone uh, everything easier. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you about product market fit, and I think this is a good parallel to ask about how to how to know when you have it, because that's that's essentially what we're talking about here. How do you know when this service has a product market fit, or like I guess service market fit? Um, how do you how do you know when you have it? I think a lot of people feel like it's like a very like artsy thing, but I feel like there's like there are, there are ways to know when you've achieved it from like a, a data, um, textual mm-hmm. feedback, etc. I think there are like various ways, like typical ways, how to measure product market fit in the product companies, but it's a completely new, like a uh, uh, completely different debate. In terms of what we are doing and how to measure service market fit, um, we haven't really thought about it that conceptually yet because we mm. were in the space where it worked for us very well and we didn't have to think about the like a new space and it's been just the, the, the last five months. Um, but I guess the way how we look at it is that it's essentially it's mostly about your sales results so not even not even the amount of revenue that you can get because it it takes some time to get to the revenue but like if you have if you properly measure your sales process then you you already see like how people are reacting to different ideas so from the very first moment of like cold reach out you know how much calls are you getting then um you know how many people you can get into proposal process um you know you can also then also you, you can conduct like qualitative uh, user interviews. So we try to talk a lot of experts from the industries and try to sort of in a structured way, ask them, hey, would this be interesting? How much you would pay for it? And all that kind of stuff. But we are even, we are new to, in that space as well. And from everything that I've heard so far, like this seems to be the right direction. Um, and the market is, is is very well receiving the the offering. Yeah. So the it sounds like based on your timelines, for a product that by uh, sometime by the end of the year you'd know like be able to drill down and like know which segment you're going to go into and then next year sounds like you'd be just hitting that segment and providing a lot of value then exactly we would like to achieve the similar growth in revenue than we had last year uh, last years so it was around like 140 percent in growth or 150 percent in revenue growth so right now we had like five to six million dollars we'll see what happens and then hopefully we can get to um, no, it won't be able to, we will not be able to do 150% for sure. Uh, sorry. Uh, I hopefully will be able to get to like 9, 10 uh, by the end of 2024. Uh, the reason why I'm saying this and I forgot completely is that we were like, it's achievable. The problem is that uh, in terms of, um, we have decided at some point that you don't want to grow that much people-wise, you know, because you are selling mm-hmm. essentially people's time. And uh it was already hard to grow from like in one year from like 40 to 100 people. Uh, we wouldn't like to go from 100 to 200. Obviously, you can yeah. you can uh, you can increase the prices, but ideally, we would really push on the margins and on the prices rather than just necessarily like now hiring another 150 people next year. Yeah, I think the hiring at that big of a rapid rate, the potential for an asshole to slip in goes up significantly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then uh, yeah. I always wonder, like, is there like a system or process you can put in to, to like find the jerks once they're in the the company? Now that's not to say like don't disagree with people or whatever, like, but there's a difference between being like being a real jerk, you know, and someone who's like, hey, uh, Joseph, I disagree with you on this thing. I think we should go left versus right and having a conversation about it. Like that, that's a different thing. I think yeah, sometimes people feel like, thing, yeah. yeah, I think sometimes people conflate the two. Um, but yeah, so I. Uh, makes sense to me in terms of like wanting to limit where you are um i think i think when you were at cambridge you did like an ai versus lawyer challenge if i've like found the right 
You? Okay, good. Yes. Um, do you think you would still... Do you think the outcome would be the same if you were to do the challenge again? With, the, with like, the updating of AI and related tools? Because I, I think that was in 2017. It's 2023. I almost forgot what year it is. I, do you think the outcome would be the same? I think the outcome would be even better uh, than it was before. Um, it's a, it's a, again, like completely new debate. I, there are many now players, we're, I think, first in the world to do that. Now there are many other players that are getting into the market and they are trying to like build predictive system for lawyers. Uh, the key, the key problem always was the data and the access to data. Like most of the jurisdictions are not in any way producing legal data. Uh, probably like US is, US and UK are the best, then like paradoxically Central Europe. Uh, but even like with all the data that was available publicly and that we could get our hands on, we never were able to um, to create systems that that would achieve us to get like a large portion of the market. But in terms of your question, that, that challenge that was on a particular data set that was large enough uh, and also very simple problems, but that was simple problems also for the lawyers. We wanted to get like lawyers you know, because we get like 140, if, not, if I don't remember, the one from best law firms in, in London. Um, yeah, I think it would be even better in terms of the result. Yeah, I, I was reading, I was like, oh, that'd be fun to uh, replicate it and see, because people are people are literally uh, negotiating contracts with ChatGPT and like related uh, barter, etc. And which is funny and good for them, because, you know, the biggest, a big problem that people had is that, um, that, I've, that I've been reading about is that that um, sometimes it's like a big corporation that has the money to afford a lawyer who can be very strategic in how they speak to you. And now it's like, hey, we have the ability to have the same thing. And now there's a level playing field of finding like a fair, you know, for negotiations or for finding a house or any of these different things, which is just fantastic. You don't need to be wealthy yes. um, anymore to get a good deal. You just have to ask the right questions, which is pretty cool. Yes. Yes, I'm. I'm not sure to be honest, like how much you can trust uh, ChatGPT yeah. in those negotiations, but like for sure, uh, in terms of like being able to formulate like basic arguments and get access mm -hmm. to data, that helped a lot for sure. Yeah, and then uh, I'm always looking for books to read. Are you? Uh, do you have time for books? I guess. And then, uh, are you reading anything that you recommend I check out? So not much. Uh, I haven't been reading much in the past, like two to three years. Uh, I mean. Obviously, the best books that I would recommend are the classics. Um, you know, the, um, the for example, for negotiation, uh, never split the difference. I yeah, forgot, I the, I forgot the other. Yeah, Chris or, or Chris Moss or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Or then um, for habits, like the power of habits. Uh, again, forgot mm -hmm. the author. Uh, and then I've been recently reading. So I, most of the what I'm reading, except for like really trying to be better in sales and articles and like very company related stuff it's mostly fantasy so mm -hmm. recently and i think i saw it actually on your linkedin uh, profile as well i i started this like two weeks ago i started reading the way of kings by brendan sanderson uh, and it's a great yeah. book it's a great yeah. book uh i'm like somewhere in the middle of the first book um uh again but like every before sleep like instead of netflix i try to i try to read that so not the biggest book reader in the past three years, but it seems like we have a very similar um, uh, preference. Yeah, Brandon Sanderson is one of my favorite authors. He's he's there's a year of Brandon Brandon Sanderson that's for this year where he wrote during COVID four books and didn't tell anyone about it, and then did a Kickstarter where it raised forty million dollars, 
and for all these books and stuff. And so like every quarter we get like a new book and uh, they're pretty wild. But yeah, Way of Kings is is arguably probably his best work. Um, it gets it's pretty. I'm not. I don't want to say anything. I don't want to spoil it because you're like in it, <laughs> yeah. and that'd be that'd be terrible. Um, but but just for like my own fun, is there are there characters you're identifying with or liking in particular? I won't tell you if Which they die. Characters? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Just don't tell me. Um, yeah, I tell you. Like probably for me the most sympathetic one is Kaladin. Yeah. Uh, I would say, yeah, yeah. For people who don't know, Kaladin, uh, like we meet him, he's literally a slave and getting beat down all the time. And like the there's like that like that meme of the peanuts. I don't know if if you're familiar. Where there's like Lucy and there's like football, and uh, but he's coming to kick the football and always gets taken away. And that's like Kaladin's mental health. (laughs) He's gonna achieve something. Yeah, I, yeah. I really, uh, it's really sympathetic. Like, the, uh, yeah, this this one feels. Uh, I always feel better when reading about this fate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, I'd be curious to hear what you think when you're uh, by the end of it, because uh, the well, we're like it's like it's gonna be ten books, but we're on the episode. We're on book four, book five. I think is coming out next year. So you're in a good time to take your time, and by the time you're yeah. caught, there'll be a whole new book, which is fantastic. And then there's gonna be a time skip. Um, you also are into. Um, I'm gonna send some books, some fantasy books your way, but I think Sanderson, if you read like a chapter a day, you're good for the next ten years. Um, you you have a podcast as well. I think you're at episode seven. Um, what what about it is unique? What why are you doing this? Why people should check it out? Essentially, so um, it's also like a very new idea and test uh, for us. Like we try to build community around um, our sales is very pretty much community driven, meaning that. Uh, you know, we, most of the deals that we get and leads that we get are coming from referrals. And those referrals are either from our, like people that have worked with us or from our friends, essentially people that know our work and are somehow in our community. So the idea of the podcast is to really provide additional source of information and also source of credibility so that people see like who, what people we work with. And, uh, you know, every month essentially we'll see like maybe it's going to be a lot more frequent. I'll be interviewing like the most interesting people that I meet or the most interesting people that uh, that um, uh, that were our clients or our partners. And um, the idea is that from the beginning, in the beginning, we were focusing on like a general founder story and story of the entrepreneur and talking about general stuff. Now we want to focus more on the on the one topic and on the expert on one topic. For example, like the next episode is going to be with the CEO of a company called Cosmic Latte. And it's a it's a like company uh, that owns other that owns several LGBTQ dating apps. And that guy knows everything about dating and about gay uh, dating. Mm-hmm. It's so fascinating, like the whole market and the tech in dating. So th- those will be the topics that I'm uh, uh, that I'm trying to go for. And again, it's it's very similar to this, except that it's more a little bit more interview like. So I I it's a little bit shorter and a little bit more interview like. I like to um, you know you know get the most interesting parts um so essentially like i always look at the guests and then see essentially three things that i want to talk about and uh um so it's a little bit shorter um but uh it requires a lot more preparation at, at the same time before that so that it, it works still working and playing with the concept we'll see where it goes yeah but you are uh, the you are yeah. the podcaster. You have you've done so many episodes. Uh what's your why you do that? Why I do it? Um 
Well, it's just fun. I like to learn. Like, uh, I love learning. And um, so it's just my excuse to learn and then help other people through learning. I mean, there's lots of stuff that we talked about today that I know several people that are in my 